Welcome to the TRI Research Group podcast, the latest in palliative care and end-of-life research. Today we have Dr. Tessa Morgan, who's going to talk about her PhD research. Welcome, Tessa. Thank you for having me. Great. So you're a research fellow at the School of Nursing in the University of Auckland, and you're going to tell us a little about what you've been up to over the last few years. So I have just completed my PhD from the University of Cambridge um, palliative care, uh, care group there looking mm-hmm. at the experiences of oldest old um, partners caring for their partner who was approaching their end of life and particularly interested in people 75 and above because we often talk about um, their palliative care needs and the oldest old are sort of known as a complex group where it's difficult to de- identify where Dying begins, particularly because there's a lot of comorbidities involved, So, um, which is something I found in my research. But what I was really interested in is we often don't talk about oldest old carers or people who are actually providing the care. And because of our aging population, that's a group in society who are exponentially expanding. So we need to know about their views and experiences. And a big assumption, too, that they're going to take on that caring role. Yeah, absolutely, um, which is an interesting one. It's something I sort of explored in my research. I was particularly interested in whether the term carer applies for mm-hmm. them. Um, and I, in uh, my first chapter, which is hopefully going to come out as a publication, um, I kind of explained that there were sort of three groups And within that, there's sort of the first group who took on carer and often it was women or it was exclusively women who really found caring incredibly different from the relationship they had had with their partner. And it was a way to kind of identify that the identity they're occupying is very different to the one that they had um, and often preferred. So I think that's interesting, whereas at the other end of the spectrum, um, I had four couples in my study where neither would refer, there was no reference to carer. There was complete rejection of that label, and that was more a view of, like, care is a consistent thing we've done reciprocally within our relationships across our lifetime and the end of life. Let's not talk about it. Um, Oh, interesting. So were they quite explicit about that? they didn't want to be referred to as a carer or they just didn't refer to themselves as that? But were they quite explicit? There was one um, participant who was explicit. Um, Another who they sort of, um, the other three in that category were just rejected. So they were like, no, 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 I'm, we're just husband and wife. Like that's, that's what's happening here. And I also think the important thing was those participants were the much older ones in the sample, the over 80s, so all four in that, where death was imminent, not only for the person they were caring for, but often for the person providing care. So Mm -hmm. in that category, um, I had an 89-year-old woman who kept falling down, couldn't leave her house, I think would have had a, a... fair to say, a a kind of advanced frailty um, diagnosis herself, Um, and yet was every day going up the stairs to care for her husband, who was 91, um, with Louis Body's dementia, who couldn't leave his room, hadn't left the room for three years since his discharge home, 
from hospital without any any support in fact and yeah so I think it's it's interesting there's lots of really like complex things happening within these very old couples where often in any other case the person providing care could be the palliative patient so do you think that is about the spousal relationship rather than it being you know just about not wanting to be called a carer that being a spouse rather than say a daughter or you know, brother or sister or something that, you know, you've got this caring thing going on in your relationship and it's doesn't, it's not an additional thing. It's just been integral to how they've been together. I definitely think there's something in that, but I also think it's something about kind of navigating the liminality of the end of life space, this sort Mm. of like kind of final bit. And there was a real, there was a lot of, um, what, uh, the notions of like speech acts that were happening to will life. So I'm really interested in this idea of how language has its own vitality and to say, you're going to keep living. Um, so I had a participant, for example, who had, um, so she was care- She was 80, caring for her second husband who had uh, penile cancer. Um, and he also had very advanced uh, vascular dementia. And he, so he could still speak, he was still verbal, and he would say, he's like, she's like, oh, he always wants to talk about dying. And he turns to me and he's like, dying. And she's like, oh, no, but, you know, the weather's good and we don't talk about that. So there's sort of a lot of this, like, kind of rhetorical care happening. So, like, no, 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 like, you're going to be fine. We're going to be fine. And so I think that in itself was a, an act of care that, yeah, goes kind of beyond just the dynamic of them being spouses. So the caring for almost like um, protecting them from it, maybe? Yep, I think so. Yeah. And it's yeah. like maintaining their personhood as well, right? Mm. Not So they're not just their illness. or mm. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? And it's that whole sort of self, how we, how, how as, as we get, as we age, how we self-identify, um, you know, because there's just so many labels around, you know, people as they get older, like I'm thinking of my parents, my parents never wanted to, to my dad never wanted to talk about being an old person. And even now at 82 with dementia, he would reject the notion of being called old. Yeah. Which is interesting because it's what we, how we culturally conceive of old age, right? Mm. Um, mm. So especially in the oldest old group, which in itself is kind of an arbitrary category, which I like, am very aware of, and it's associated as the real old age now that we've kind of got this like beautiful golden period of retirement from 60, 65 to 75, you go on cruises, and then all of a sudden you get to 75 and you're frail, you're dependent, you're passive, and like you're a care recipient like merely and so I think a lot of what I'm trying to do with my work is also highlight not just that this is a vulnerable group but also this is a really creative practical group and also just a key part of the health workforose right that Mm. whose needs and experiences are being overlooked and I want to get old (laughs) yeah nobody nobody wants to but it's embracing it in a way that doesn't label us as something different I think something other rather yeah. than just who we are, um, mm-hmm. what you live with for all your life, I guess, or most of your life. So um, just tell us a little bit about the design of your study. What sort of design did you adopt? You obviously interviewed people. Yeah, yes. So I adopted a narrative approach. 
um, because I thought it was it's um, very important to me that marginalised groups get to tell their stories on their own terms and this very old cohort um, often don't ever have their voices represented or in research. It's generally, so Julia Twigg, a sociologist, says that we need to wrestle the accounts of old age from medical professionals and that's particularly why I chose this method and what it actually involved is um, me going cycling somewhere in wider Cambridge or training somewhere random in London um, and just having a tea with the couple and just chatting and just being like, what's important to you? And so sometimes these discussions would last, my longest was six hours um, and ended in a church with the participant scrolling through her phone, showing me everyone she knew who died in the last year so you know they kind of took me in very um yeah really interesting ways and I also think it's important to build research relationships so not only did I yeah enable people to tell me what was most important to them I also interviewed most couples three times so we kind of had this extended um period of interaction yeah, and I think it did really make a difference around mm. what kind of data I received. I think if you get someone coming into a house for the first time, you're going to be like, look, it's good, I'm managing. And often by the third interview, I'd get, I can't handle this. Um, so there's something about establishing trust with the researcher that's given you a whole different insight into what's yeah. going on for them, yeah? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. But I And I also think the immediate thing of that there was some crazy stuff happening like people were so I had four different carers have hospital admissions themselves because of exhaustion and um care so one of my carers died um there's a whole range of things that were happening because you know these bodies and minds are declining and super Mm -hmm. fluid and um we kind of see that in epidemiological data around this is known as a group who has like trajectories that are all over the place as opposed to like a kind of linear downward. Yeah. But like the actual lived experience of that is pretty hectic and mm. important to capture. So how did you recruit these people? I mean, you were a Kiwi girl in Cambridge. Yeah. Um, so officially, um, yeah, so I used a horizontal horizontal sampling method which just means I leveraged the social capital off one of my supervisors who was a local GP who knew other GPs. But primarily I got participants through attending carers groups, through going to advocacy events. And I did um, about eight months of patient and public involvement. So I went to a lot of um, different groups to like meet people who would then be like, oh, I know someone in your, who you would like to speak to. Um, yeah, so it was really organic like that. Yeah. Um, and all up, I had 19 participants um, with a further 12 spouses who took part in interviews but had dementia, so weren't technically participants. But, so you interviewed yeah. each of those 19 three times? Um, not all of them because some things changed. Yes. Um, yes. So someone died, uh, a couple, the man was 92 Again, another participant who had cancer and dementia and was nonverbal, was very end of days, and they were being evicted from their council lot because a private investor was buying up the whole council estate. And so, yeah, we couldn't do a third interview. So pretty 
outrageous things um wow yeah wow. and um you ended up with a lot of data I reckon you must yeah. have how did you manage Definitely. that how did um, you manage all the data and how did yeah. you approach the analysis yeah, so that's definitely one of the like kind of hazards of narrative approach because, of course, you're letting people really tell their stories, which, you know, um, can end up being like 50-page transcripts and stuff. Um, I was really conscientious about analysing as I went, so I always kept um, field notes and I wrote a pen portrait and kind of basic summary after every interview. Um and after each interview, I also returned to, when I returned, I'd be like, oh, this is kind of what I took from it. So kind of checking my interpretation as I went. Yeah. So that was, I think, key to it. Mm. Um, and then in the actual analysis phase, I read each participant's set of transcripts all in a go, like one go, and sort of processed it quite systematically like that. Yeah. Analysis is always ongoing, though. Part of it is always through the writing as well. Um, yeah. With narrative in particular, uh, you so how I've done it is I've picked three examples um, for each of my main chapters that shows the kind of range of experiences within. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and so even through that process of writing and having to describe these really intimate encounters, I then got more out of it. Um, yeah, so I found it a really enjoyable analysis process, actually. Mm -hmm. So um, what were the key findings so I think there's two major findings um the first is to highlight just how active um a role older spouses are playing in the end-of-life care um of their partners they're not merely older frail people um they are providing daily medications they are creating these life sustaining routines and they're also doing a lot of administration. We're talking about the UK when they're like arranging healthcare assistance. So let's think about kind of a fuller picture of what older spouses are doing. And, um, and then the second one is also, you cannot understand an older end-of-life care patient from their wider family context. And particularly in the case of the couples I was speaking to, all except for one case were basically the primary carer was the older spouse and that was what the day-to-day -day care um, situation looked like. Um, so my suggestion in the thesis is that we should interview, so we, we should make sure that we're considering couples, not individual patients or individual mm. carers. And that's the only way to get the holistic thing. So another example where um, my participant collapsed in hospital um, when she was visiting her husband who was already in a hospital um, and then she was admitted in another ward um, and then at discharge they were like cool like we're going to send you home like do you have do you live with uh, a husband which is also heteronormative and they should change that too but anyway and she's like yes I do live with my husband but uh he's kind of got dementia he's like in another bay like you know she challenged him on that but anyone else may not have challenged it and, and just she gone would, home she yeah. would have just been sent home so yeah, yeah. there's yeah. a lot of learning there I think in terms of how we engage with people you know like even the language we use and checking out who they are and what's in their life before 
yeah, just before we even connect, I think, or interact with people. Um, yeah. Mm, mm. Um, and being a fresh postdoc person now, um, you must have a million ideas that have come out of this in terms of where you want to go next with your program of research. You got any thoughts around what next? Um, yeah, I have a few. Um, I think one of the main things I became very interested in during my um, during my interviews was the role of healthcare assistants in um, supporting older partners to provide end of life care at home. Um, and the people I met in healthcare assistant roles were um, primarily uh, primarily migrant men mm. um, caring for because their patients were. Um, older predominantly white men um and it was an, a very interesting interaction because I think that they healthcare assistants are doing so much end-of-life care work but we don't call it that we call it you know we're personal cares or yeah, yeah oh they're taking someone to the toilet you're like cool but in the context of their bodies completely you know approaching their ends and that looks very different so that kind of relationship I think um, and considering the intersectional vulnerabilities occurring at the um, end of life amongst the oldest olders. Yeah, something I want to continue to explore. Yeah. Great. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for telling us all about this amazing piece of work. I've been actually dying to talk to you about it for ages, and I've only ever, we sit right next door to each other in the office, and I hear little snippets, and we've had conversations, but to hear it in its greatest, you know, in, in, in the whole has, has been really great. Um, so thank you for that. Yeah, thank you for the opportunity. No, well, we always finish with every podcast with a little question. Um, and this is a little bit um, of an opportunity for you to share with the listeners a little bit about yourself. And because we're a good sort of death podcast series, it's a little bit to do with the um, the bucket list. You've heard of the bucket list? Yeah. Except you're not allowed to have a list. You're only allowed one thing. And you don't okay. really have time for a whole list. So you have time for one thing. You have 24 hours, in fact. Um, but you can do whatever you want to do. Um, what would be the one thing that you would do? Oh, go to Great Barrier and surf a Kiwi. Ah, excellent. <laughs> yeah, well, it is a pretty special place, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, excellent. Well, thank you very much. Oh, good. <laughs> Thank you for listening to our podcast today. If you would like to know more about TRI, please go to our website. The link is in the description.